Welcome to the worship service of St. Luke's in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses, and under the leadership of our senior pastor, Dr. Bob Long, we are a family of faith that seeks to share God's love and bring hope to the world. We invite you now to join us for a message of hope. Then Mary, when she came where Jesus was and saw him, fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. I knew that thou hearest me always, but I have said this on account of the people standing by, that they may believe that thou didst send me. And when he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with bandages, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When my wife, Marcia, was in elementary school, her uncle, S.E., and her Aunt Betty and their two children were in a car accident. They were driving down a country road when a man came driving the other direction drunk, swerved into their lane and hit them head on. Essie was hurt. His leg was broken. The kids in the back, they just received some lacerations and bruises. But Aunt Betty took the brunt. And she was seriously injured. And they felt she was going to die. Now this was about 55 years ago. They didn't have a metaphlac flight helicopter to fly them to Houston. No, you had to get an ambulance to come and an ambulance to drive them back. And when the ambulance picked her up and started driving her to Houston, they had to stop four times in order to resuscitate her. They kept losing her, bringing her back, losing her, bringing her back. They made it to Houston and there she went into surgery. When they came out of surgery, in the end, the doctor told them that her back was broken that she had had all kinds of internal damage. Her face had been crushed. All the bones in her face had basically been broken. They were going to be able to put it back together, but they said, you really won't recognize her. She's not going to look the same. And sure enough, that was the case. But Marcia said she felt like she really did still look beautiful. She was a wonderful lady. She was a very strong lady. Her father was Admiral Wright. He was in the Navy. They'd been a Navy family. 
They understood discipline. They understood hard work, what it means to be strong. She was also a lady of faith. And she was a lady who loved to have fun and to laugh. Well, the doctor told her, in the end, you probably will never walk again. And you'll never have children again. Life is going to be difficult. Well, she went home and she started her recuperation. Two years later, she walked into the doctor's office. And she bent over and she touched her toes. And then she said, I'd like to see you do that, please. <laughs> she did have more children. And she did go on to live a very happy, joyful, effective life. There had been the struggles, but she was a lady of faith, and there was such a, a wonderful time in her life. My Marcia's sister, Janice, she was very close to Aunt Betty. They were of a kindred spirit, and Janice had gone to medical school, and so they had a chance to talk about things. What are you going through? What are you needing? Well, the years went by, and Aunt Betty wound up being diagnosed with ALS. And so again, she and Janice had a lot of time to talk. What was going on? What would the future hold? And while they were talking, Aunt Betty said, you know, Janice, I'm, I'm not afraid to die. And then she told her a story from so many years before that she really hadn't talked about because you didn't talk about it in those days. She explained that when she was in the accident, she felt like she was out of her body. And she saw this bright light. And she was being attracted to the light, pulled to the light. She felt like she was actually climbing a water tower. And as she was moving up this water tower, she would get to the top and there was this wall. And she looked over and on the other side, she saw this great party going on. And it looked so beautiful. And it was so joyful and there was such love. It was hard to put into words. She wanted to go, but she felt pulled back down the ladder. And she would try to climb back again and look over and she saw this amazing, beautiful party and then she was pulled back down again. It was always such a struggle to try to get back to the top again. She wanted to go. She got to the top and looked over again. And this time she heard a voice say, you have to go back. And the next thing she knew, she was coming to in a hospital. She was hurt. She was in pain. And she was angry. Angry. Because she had wanted to go to the party. And they had brought her back. Now when I say she was angry, I already told you she grew up in a Navy family. She knew how to express herself in ways that her father's crew would understand. <laughs> she was mad. Because it looked so amazing. As time went on and they got ever closer to death, Janice was there. And when they felt that the end had come, Janice was sitting beside her and was holding her hand. And Betty's eyes had been closed. She was very quiet, lifeless. And finally Janice said, Aunt Betty, are you going to the party? And she opened her eyes 
And she smiled and she nodded. And she closed her eyes and went to the party. It was in 1975, my first year in seminary, that a book came out entitled Life After Life. It was by Raymond L. Moody. And it's the first time that people had started talking about near-death experiences. It's Raymond Moody who came up with that title, Near-Death Experiences, 1975. And it really was all about people who had died whether in an accident or an allergic reaction or in surgery, but then been resuscitated. And he was a psychiatrist and people were struggling with their feelings and you couldn't talk about these things, but he created space where people could talk about it and not feel judged and it was okay. And when people started talking to him about it, what he found was people were having so many of the same common experiences, moving to the light, that there was something beautiful. It felt like love. You would go through a tunnel. You would see relatives who were already dead. There, there were certain things that so many seemed to experience that he found it fascinating and wrote it down in this book saying, it doesn't prove anything. I'm just telling you, here's what I'm hearing from all these people. And he called it life after life and near-death experiences. Well, in the last 45 years, now people talk about near-death experiences and we're finding just how common they are because of our technology. And now all kinds of people write books and movies and things about it. Well, the one thing we can learn about people who've had near-death experiences is regardless of what you think may or may not have happened, we can see that when people come back, the way they live life now seems to be different. Now you can look at people and say, they seem to be doing it different. Their values seem to be different. What they do seems to be different. So regardless of what you believe about everything, it actually affects them. It changes them and the way they live life. So if that happens to a person who has a near-death experience where they may be dead for minutes or a little longer, I can only imagine the near-death experience that Lazarus had after he was dead for four days. What kind of NDE did he have? And how would that change his life? The story begins, the fact that Jesus is good friends with Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. They had a home right outside of Jerusalem at Bethany. It's about two miles away. Jesus had stayed with them many times before. And now he was on his way to Jerusalem to go to the Passover, this big celebration we're going to be talking all about it here in these coming weeks. He was on his way to the Passover and it would be a great place to stay at Mary and Martha's and Lazarus. Go into town, come back. Go into town, come back. He was on his way when Lazarus fell ill and they sent Jesus word, our brother, your friend is sick. I mean, they knew, they'd seen Jesus heal the blind, make the lame to walk. We need you. But Jesus did not hurry on to Bethany. In fact, when he gets there, Lazarus has already been dead for four days. Martha is the first one who comes out to meet him and say to him, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus said, your brother will rise again. 
I know, she said, in the end, in the last resurrection, I know that he will rise. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. He said, take me to the tomb. Well, word had reached Martha, Mar- I mean Mary. Mary came out to see Jesus. There were many people who were there to comfort them. They all came. They all went to the tomb. And when they got to the tomb, Jesus said, roll the stone back. And here's when you know it isn't just a th- nice theological story. Here's the practicality that's being written by the gospel writers. They say, he's been dead four days. It's going to smell. Now, that was a practical issue. They rolled the stone back. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come out. And in a few minutes, they see this man come out who is wrapped in bandages, who has this napkin across his head. It's the way that people were buried. Now, can you imagine how Mary and Martha felt to be standing there? And here is their brother that they had buried, and he was alive. Four days later, he was back. Can you imagine how all these other people who had come felt? They knew Jesus could heal the blind and he could make the lame walk, but to raise the dead? They all begin to say, this may be the Messiah. This may be the one we've been looking for. Word spread into town where all the people had come. This may be the one we're looking for. Now, if you stay on track with your reading in John this week and you're in the 10th and the 11th chapters, you're going to read the rest of the story we didn't read in our scripture lesson. Because what happens is, it is the religious authorities, the high priest, who gets very upset and goes, if everybody starts thinking this is the Messiah, they're going to try to make Jesus king. They'll form army and Rome will then come and we will be squashed. They will tear down the temple. The people will be killed. The nation will be destroyed. And so it says very clearly, the high priest said, one man must die for the good of the nation. Jesus needed to go. They would also believe that Lazarus needed to go because people were believing because of him. Less than two weeks from the time that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, He would be crucified. Now I think the question that ought to come into all of our minds is, how did Lazarus feel about the man that had healed him now being crucified? How did Lazarus now live with the time that had been given him from having died till he would die again? We all die. Lazarus would now know that better than most. How would he live with the time that had been given to him? We don't really know. It doesn't tell us in our Bible. But it's interesting, in writings from the 2nd and 3rd century and other Gospels that didn't make it into our Bible, there are kinds of stories about Lazarus. One of them says that the religious authorities were so concerned about Lazarus, they got Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, put all of them into a boat that was leaky and pushed it out into the Mediterranean, thinking they'd be gone forever. But the boat made it to Cyprus, and there they would found a new church, 
and he would become the bishop of the church and they would live there for the next 30 years. Another story says that no, Lazarus was put into a boat with no oars there at Jaffa and again pushed out to sea or into the Mediterranean and it would make its way all the way to modern day France. He would go to Marseille and there he would found a church and ultimately he would be martyred there at the church. If you go to any of those places, you'll find a church for Lazarus and relics and all kinds of things. There's a lot of stories about him we don't know. This morning, I want to start a sermon series entitled Raising the Dead. And we're going to start for the season of Lent today, looking at the scripture of Lazarus being raised from the dead, and we will end on Easter with Jesus being raised from the dead. And all between, I want us to look at scriptures that talk about how does Christ help bring us back from the dead right now and when we die. And so we're going to look at the power of Christ and the resurrection and how we are brought to life. But what we want to do today is begin looking at Lazarus and knowing that John doesn't just write you a story to tell you what happened. The way he writes a story, there's always a deeper meaning, symbolism, things he wants to say to us. And I think there's so much we need to hear about the power of the risen Christ and the story John gives to us. And today there's three things that I want to lift up. First of all, it is Jesus who says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come out. Come out of the tomb. Come forth from death. The early church would have heard the power of Christ is to redeem us from death. Come out to life right now. How many times do you and I feel dead in our spirit? You can just feel so depressed. You can feel so tired. You can feel so worried. You can have so many struggles. Don't you ever feel dead in your spirit? To believe that it is Christ who says, He calls you by name. Come out. Come out of the tomb. You know, I, you know how much I enjoy space and all things with space. Here recently we've been hearing all in the news so much about Elon Musk and, and his rocket now shooting back into space. We're soon going to be carrying men back aboard a rocket to the, um, to the space station from America. And as I'm thinking about all these things going on in space, it made me start thinking about just how much I really do like to go out at night and look up into the heavens. You know, you and I can do it right here on any kind of night, go out and look into the heavens. But I really like doing it if you're away from the bright lights of the city. If you're out on the water or you're in the desert or you're up on a mountain, you see so many more stars. Then you think about our universe. Sometimes you and I just, we're so focused on here, we, we forget to see the grandeur of our universe. You, you think about, we live in the Milky Way. We live in the Milky Way. And we have our little planet Earth. Our nearest star, technically, is the sun. It's only about 930 million miles away. But the nearest star, when we really think about a star, is Alpha Centauri. And Alpha Centauri is about 
4.3 light years away. Now, a light year, you remember what that is? Light travels at the speed of 186,000 miles per second. Let me say that again. 186,000 miles per second. And so the whole thing of a light year is how far will light travel in 365 days, uh, 65 days at that speed? And the answer I can give you is about 6 trillion. So all it takes is 4.3 years at traveling 6 trillion miles a year and we can actually get to the nearest star, Alpha Centauri. That's a long way. But that's in the Milky Way galaxy. The next galaxy over is Andromeda, and that's about 2 million light years away. This is an enormous universe. And when you stop and think about that, I, I always loved the way that the psalmist would wrestle with that and how the psalmist would say, When I look at the heavens, the work of thy fingers the moon and the stars which thou hast established? What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Yet thou hast made him little less than God, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. It is the psalmist who took the time to look into the heavens and go, My goodness gracious, the works of thy hands. And what, what is man that you should care about him? And yet the faith, the statement of the early church would be, it is Christ who calls you by name, come forth. Come forth from the tomb. Come forth from death. If you'll just stop and think about the nature of Almighty God who loves you enough to call you by name, come forth. That'll change the way that you live. But secondly, Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. Now again, we know that that's one of those theological statements. Unbind him and let him go. We all feel bound at times, trapped. Trapped because of struggles with our health. Trapped because of struggles financially, trapped because you're having to take care of a loved one who is, who is ill and so sick and you're going to be there for them, trapped. You know, I, I, I was at a birthday party for our little Cameron, our six-year-old yesterday, and all these kids were running around and I'm talking to parents and I was reminded how much for parents it is so demanding. When you have one, two, three, four kids and you're trying to get them here and get them there and corrupt. And I think, you know, you can live in that period of time and you think, how do I do it? It can be overwhelming. We all can have these times when you feel like you are in a situation that is so hard and you were trapped. For the early church, the faith was, it is the creator of the universe who says to you, come forth from death, unbind them and let them go to give you the strength to find your way into life? Yeah, years ago, I, I read a book, What Color Is Your Parachute? Some of you may be familiar with it. 
I mean, the book first came out in 1970. It was written by Richard Boyle. The fascinating thing is Richard Boyle was an Episcopal priest. But he wrote a book on how to find a job. But it was more than a book on how to find a job. It really was a book on how do you find your calling, your mission. And so the book, when he first wrote it, nobody wanted it. So he self-published and it became so popular, a publisher picked it up. And they put out a revised version every year now for 49 years. This year will be the 49th edition of What Color Is Your Parachute? Because they continue to update it. Things have changed in, our, in the way that our world works and jobs and with technology. But in the midst of all this book about how to find this job, he has this wonderful chapter about how do we find our calling. And I want to read you a couple sentences. He said, I can't apologize. I'm a Christian pastor. And I want to talk for a moment from the perspective of my faith. The importance of how do you go about finding your job? Your first mission here on earth is one which you share with the rest of the human race. To seek to stand hour by hour in the conscious presence of God. The one from whom your mission is derived. The missioner before the mission is the rule. In religious language, your mission here is to know God and enjoy Him forever. And to see His hands and all his works. I read that statement in 1979, and I've never forgotten it, and I'll go back to it. When I'm thinking about life, your mission is to know God and enjoy him forever, and to see his hands and all his work. To believe that our calling is to love God to know God, to enjoy Him. You know, it's fascinating when you read about near-death experiences, these NDEs, one of the things that, again, is so common in most people when they come back, they say, you know, the purpose of life is to learn how to love. Almost all come back and say, it's about love. Learning to love God and learning to love those around you to know God and enjoy Him, to be able to love those who are here, that that actually is the purpose of life. If you were able to believe and walk in the Spirit of Christ so that you know the Creator of the universe calls you from the grave, that He is the one that says, unbind them and let them go, set them free. Could you and I this Lent Discover what it means to live in a new way. And finally, the third thing. It was Martha who first got to him. And Jesus made the statement, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, that's actually a statement of faith, I believe, from the early church. That really is the statement of who Jesus is. That's what the early church would have said about Jesus. He is the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in him, though he die, this is about physical dying, will never die. And he who lives and believes in me, 
ah, now that's talking about this life will never die. That emotional, spiritual death. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. When you walk in Christ, it's going to change the way that you look at every day. I, I don't know if some of you had to have seen the video that I caught this last week. It, it seems to be in a lot of different places right now. A video of a young lady about 19 years old. She has Down syndrome. Her name is Amy Bockerset. Amy lives in Phoenix, Arizona. As I said, she has Down syndrome. And yet she loves to play golf and is an incredible golfer. She managed to play on the high school golf team and has played in the state finals before on her golf team. But about a month ago was the Phoenix Open. If you're a golfer, you would have known that. The Phoenix Open is a big golf tournament. And they have the famous 16th hole where you got the stands all around it and, and the fans kind of go crazy and it's a par three. I mean, it's one of these iconic holes, special place on the PGA Tour. Well, on that Tuesday before the tournament started, they had a an Oli- special Olympics day where they invited kids who had disabilities to come and to be there on the course to meet and greet many of the different uh, uh, golfers, these professional golfers. And Amy was there. And it was Gary Woodland who had won the tournament the year before who was there to meet and greet with Amy. And they were going to talk. And then Gary said, would you like to hit some balls, walk a hole with us? And Amy said, yes. And so they walked over to the 16th hole where all these fans were already in the stand. And she was going to tee it up. Now they had all been kind of hugging her and high-fiving her. I hear you're a great golfer, Amy. Yep. I hear you like that. Yep. She walked over to sit down and her father had her, her golf shoes and he was lacing up her golf shoes and she was going, they love me, daddy. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. She got her shoes on. She got her clubs and went over and Gary's thinking, oh my goodness, I mean, what's going to happen to this little girl? What did I do? I mean, you're in front of all these fans. These people are all watching. If you're a golfer, you know what that's like if you're going to walk up to that first tee and suddenly there's a crowd to watch. It's amazing how you forget everything. You're going to pick up your head. You're going to look down the course. You you top the ball. It rolls down 30 or 40 yards. You know, those are the kind of things that happen. And he's thinking, what is she, how is she going to handle this pressure? Amy comes, steps up. She hits that ball. She drives it right down the center. There the course. It went so far, though, it went into the sand trap right in front of the course, the green. It had a steep face on it. But it was a great drive. And they're walking along and they're talking and, and Gary and other people, that was great. That was great. What a way to go. And when they finally get up closer, Gary says, would you want me to go into the sand trap and get the ball out? She looked up and said, no, I got this. And she gets her club and she heads into the sand trap and the camera's on her and you hear her just saying to herself, you can do this, you can do this. You can do this. And she walks up and she blasts it. And I mean, it comes up. You can't even see where the flag is from down there in the, in the, the sand trap. And it comes up and it lands on the green just right and rolls and stops about eight feet from the hole. And people are clapping and Gary is laughing. He can't believe it. He is just going, you're amazing. That's incredible. And she comes up. She's all excited and they're high five. That's wonderful. And they're kind of walking up towards the putt. And Gary said later, 
I'm thinking, oh my God, please help her sink this. Oh my. And he says, well, you think we ought to go do this? She looked up at him and said, I got this. He said, I think it's going to break a little to the left. She looked back and said, I got this. And again, she walks towards the ball and you can hear her saying, you can do this. You can do this. And she gets up and addresses it and she puts it with confidence and drills it in the center of the cup. She pars the hole. Well, I mean, people in the stands, they're just suddenly going crazy. They're all clapping and they are shouting and Gary can't believe it and he is laughing and hugging her and going, you're amazing. Wave to the crowd and she's back there. She's waving to everybody. And everybody's just going crazy. It is incredibly kind in this special video. And I saw, watched lots of different ones and people taking a, a kind of a perspective on it, but I saw one where her father was interviewed off to the side of the green. And when they interviewed him, he said, the wonderful thing about Amy is she's always in the moment. She doesn't know to be afraid. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be in the moment and not be afraid? For people who've had a near-death experience, it seems to come easier. Have a different perspective. Because Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And when you walk in that spirit of Christ, when you start thinking about the creator of the universe is the one who calls you from the grave. The one who says, unbind him and let him go. When you walk in that spirit, you can be in the moment. And you don't have to be afraid. The truth is, Christ raises from the dead. And he wants to raise you today. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen. You've been watching the worship service of St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses. Learn all about St. Luke's different services and programs on our website, stlukesokc.org. We trust that you will experience God's love and hope throughout this week.